I've never been someone who's super great at preparation. I just kind of have this thought process in my head, and it's very arrogant, and it's falling apart quickly, but that no matter what comes, no matter what happens, that I'll probably be able to figure it out when it happens. And so most of my life, I haven't been the person who puts in the heavy work making preparations for the unknown things to come. But the older I get, the more I see the importance of that. And I'm taking some small baby steps, but I think they're important. Like, for instance, I stretch now before I play basketball, which Alex Nolan thinks is hilarious because he looks at it as a sign that my body is old and collapsing while he is youthful and vigorous and can run around all day without stretching. But he's going to find out one day when he's in his 30s and his body starts to fall apart and doesn't bounce like like it should, that it's not quite that funny when some 17-year-old kid walks in the gym and says, oh, I forgot you have to stretch for 45 minutes before you do this. And he's going to see that it stings just a little bit, but he's going to know in his heart that he is making preparations for something he has to do now. But that's a little thing, right? That's a small preparation to make. But big things, difficult things, important things require a much deeper level of preparation. Think about the people who believe that there is a cataclysmic event on the horizon for our world. A you know, solar flare, an EMP, some sort of attack that's going to render all of our electronics and technology useless, the doomsday preppers. These people spend all of their time, all of their money, all of their energy, all of their efforts preparing for something that's going to change life as we know it. And so believing that's coming, they spend money on underground bunkers, they store up grain, they store up a lot of water, they learn how to farm, they learn how to live off the grid, so that when this happens, they're prepared and they're ready, because that's a really big, life-changing sort of event. Big things, important things, require incredibly detailed and meticulous preparation. That's what we find happening in the life of Christ in Luke chapter 3 and chapter 4. Jesus is preparing to embark on the most important thing, the most important mission, the most important and difficult work that's ever been done in the history of the world as he prepares to go out and not only minister, but to proclaim the good news of salvation, that the kingdom of God has come into the world and he has brought it, and through his life and then ultimately through his death and resurrection, he is bringing salvation to all people from all places, from all different backgrounds. And so in John chapter 3, we see Jesus go out into the wilderness to find John the Baptist. And Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, and we see this divine commissioning over his ministry when God the Father speaks from heaven as the Holy Spirit descends on Christ and says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And we see Jesus' ministry begin. But it doesn't begin the way that we think it would. Jesus doesn't come out of the water and begin teaching. Jesus comes out of the water and is driven deeper into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit for a period of trial and temptation. And Jesus goes out into the wilderness and he fasts from food and water for 40 days. And while he's there, he's being tempted by the devil to give in to all the things that that would catch his attention and catch his eye, being tempted in several different ways. And all of this is preparing him for ministry. And it's taxing and it's overwhelming, even to the point that after the temptation and fast is over, the Bible says that angels come and minister to him. And then, after the season of preparation, Jesus gets up 
and walks out of the wilderness and begins going throughout the region preaching about the kingdom of God. He goes all through Galilee and teaches in synagogues and he's healing and he's showing himself to be who he is, the Messiah, the Son of God who's come into the world to bring the kingdom of God into the world. And then he goes home. He goes back to his hometown of Nazareth and he preaches a message in a synagogue that lays the foundation for what the kingdom of God is and what it means to the people who would partake in it. Jesus lays out this message that the kingdom of God has arrived and he has brought it and it is a message for all people just like we saw last week as the angels make that proclamation as Christ is born. And so today we're going to see and hear Jesus introduce his hometown to the message of the kingdom. And through that, we're going to see the beauty of the kingdom of God and what it means for each and every one of us even today because the message to Nazareth is the same as the message to us here in Loganville, Georgia today that the gospel is good news to all people and it comes through Christ Jesus himself. But we're also going to see that the kingdom of God can be a very difficult thing to grasp and to wrestle with. And that it comes not on our terms, but on his terms. And that we have to accept it as it comes. And so this morning, we're going to look at the introduction of the kingdom as Jesus begins his teaching and healing ministry, coming home to Nazareth. And so we'll be in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 30. And this is the word of God. And he, Jesus, came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, and has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will say to yourself, Or you'll quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Fathers, we do every week. We thank you and praise you for the word that you've given us. We thank you for these words of Christ that teach us the good news of the kingdom of God, that 
you came to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty anyone who is oppressed. And God, we thank you that as we're about to see, all of us fit into those categories. So I pray this morning that as we see this introduction to the kingdom, this foundation on which all the other teaching that we're going to look through through the book of Luke rests, that you would help us to hear this as a message of joy, that we would receive the kingdom as it comes on your terms, and that you would be honored and glorified by the way that we live as members of your kingdom. God, we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Before we jump into the meat of what Jesus said, I want to look at a couple observations about the ministry and the type of ministry that Jesus was doing. Because I think it's incredibly informative. If we're followers of Christ, if we're Christians and want to be like Christ, then we should learn to also minister the way that Christ ministers. And there are two things that I think are really important about this moment here in Nazareth that we can see that teaches us how we should live out our lives ministering to the people around us. And the first one is kind of simple, but for me I think was really profound, and it's that Jesus ministered in his hometown. Jesus was doing ministry in the place in which he grew up. And I think there's a certain romance to getting out especially when you grow up in a small town or a small place. You see it in movies all the time, two young teenagers talking about their plans and their dating and they want to get married and you know they, they talk about how the town is too small for them and all these kind of movie cliche things like, one day, Terrine, I'm going to take you out of here and we're going to go to the big city. You know, There's just this romantic idea of we got to get out of here and we've got to go do something else. But... I think what happens with that is that too often, when it comes to ministry, we think about it the same way. The ministry is something that happens somewhere else. That we have to go and do ministry, that we have to get out, especially when we use terms like missions and being missionaries. We think about ministry as something that we go and we do, and then we have our normal lives. We have our jobs, we have our, we have our home life, we have the things that are normal in all of our lives, and that's just routine, that's just everything that happens, that's just where we live. And then we go and do ministry, whether that's at church or at a church function, or actually leaving a place to go and to participate in ministry. But if Jesus saw the importance of Nazareth, we cannot overlook the importance of Loganville. If Jesus saw the importance of Nazareth, we can't overestimate the importance of the place where God has put us at the moment that God has put us there. And yes, sometimes God does call us to leave and to go places and to serve other places. And I've made no shadow of doubt over the fact that I am hoping and praying that this will always be a church where we get rid of people, where people come and grow up in Christ and and find their spiritual gifts and are called into ministry and go and plant churches and serve at churches and go overseas into missions and move new places and, and establish new ministries other places. We love for that to happen. But also we have to recognize the importance of place. That God has put us somewhere for a reason, and as long as we are in that place, that is the place where we're called to minister. And so we have to learn to see our hometown, or even more specifically, our homes, 
as places that we are called to minister. To see them with the eyes of Christ who returned to Nazareth, to a place where they were very familiar with him. Because you can even see this in the passage of Scripture as Jesus is reading this and saying these things. They're having to scratch their head a little bit and say, wait, isn't this Joseph the carpenter's son? Isn't this the kid that we knew that we watched grow up? How, how is he saying these things? How is he preaching these things? They knew Jesus intimately and very, very well. They knew his family. And that's where he was teaching this message of the kingdom of God because he saw the importance of ministering in his hometown, and we should as well. But not only did Jesus minister in his hometown, but when Jesus was ministering, his ministry was done as usual. The first part of this passage of scripture, in chapter 4, verses 16, in the English Standard Version that I'm preaching out of, it says, He came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. But in the Christian Standard Bible, I love the way that they translate that because they said, as usual, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And I think that terminology is really important to us because I think it's easy for Christians to look at doing ministry like athletes look at playing in the game. You hear all the time coach speech about getting your game face on, whatever that means. And so you've got to get hyped up and ready because now the game is happening and now you've got to jump into it and now you've got to get moving. And we think about ministry that way a lot of times, that we have to get our ministry face on. There's my normal life. There's my normal routine. There's the things that I do. There's the eating and the drinking and the coffee and the work and the the parenting or the being a child and going to school, all the normal things that we participate in. And then when it's time for ministry, we gear up, we get the right clothes on, we get the right face on, we do the right things, and then we jump into it. But Luke tells us here that Jesus did ministry as usual. It was part of his custom. It was part of what he did. It was part of his everyday life. There wasn't a segment of Jesus' life that was dedicated to ministry, but everything he did, even asking a woman for a drink of water at a well, became an opportunity to tell her about the kingdom of God. That's why we see the New Testament command us to do whatever we do, whether we're eating or drinking, to do it all for the glory of God. And what better way to glorify God than to use every avenue we have to minister and to love and to serve. Jesus used every ordinary moment as an opportunity to teach people, to love people, and to care for people. And so we have that same responsibility to learn to do ministry as usual. And the ordinary, customary part of our lives and the things that we do out of habit and routine and the places that we go often, whether it's in our home, in our schools, at our jobs, the restaurants that we go to, to look at every opportunity and every person we meet is an opportunity to love them and serve them and care for them and give them the good news of the gospel. We don't need to have to hype ourselves up to be able to do the work that Christ has called us to do, but we should use our lives and spend so much time in Scripture and in the Word that we are constantly ready in season and out of season to do the work that God has called us to. I know I've been guilty so many times of just praying that God would give me opportunities to minister, opportunities to serve, opportunities to share my faith. And sometimes I feel like it's important for me to just open my eyes when I pray. And instead of asking God to give me the opportunities, just asking God to show me the opportunities that he's already put all around me. 
Because every one of us have opportunities to love and to serve and minister in the ordinary, usual parts of our lives. We just need to be looking and paying attention so that we can see them. And so I know that's a weird aside at the beginning here, but let's look at the ministry and the practice of Christ as he loves and serves and imitate that because there is no better minister to imitate than the Son of God bringing the kingdom of God into the world. So anyway, Jesus enters the synagogue. And he walks up into the synagogue and he takes the scroll, one of the scrolls of the prophet Isaiah. And I love the phrasing there because he says that he found the place where it said, which gives me a lot of anxiety. Because he didn't have chapter headings and verse numbers. It wasn't, he didn't open to Isaiah chapter so-and-so, verse so-and-so to find this passage. He just opened it and then found the place. And I don't know how big the scroll was, but that seems like a very intimidating and very impressive thing to do. But he finds the place where it says this amazing passage of Scripture as Isaiah makes this declaration about the good news and the year of God's favor. And Jesus reads those words saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus rolls the scroll back up and he hands it to the attendant and then he goes and he sits down, which almost feels like some sort of ancient mic drop. (laughs) And then Jesus just reads it and then he just walks off and sits down. And everybody is amazed at what Jesus says. And then he says something even more profound. He says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And the translation of that is is very simple. Jesus sits down and he says, this passage of scripture that Isaiah wrote hundreds of years before this exact moment where Jesus reads these words, he says, all these words of the prophet Isaiah, they are about me. This year of God's favor, it's about right now. It's about my kingdom, my favor, and my salvation that I'm bringing into the world. And these words of Isaiah contained inside of them this kingdom manifesto. And now Jesus takes these words that people thought they had understood for hundreds of years, and he cracks them open, and he shows them what they really mean. And we see that the message of the kingdom of God The message of God's salvation through Christ is good news to the poor. It's freedom to the enslaved and oppressed and it's sight to the blind. And that's a beautiful message all on its own. But of course, Jesus isn't just talking about those who are oppressed physically. Those who are blind physically, those who are poor physically. But Jesus is teaching us something much deeper about our own spiritual state and the kind of salvation that he came to bring. Because think about, and we haven't gotten there yet, but in our community groups, we're going through the book of Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to get to a point on the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus starts taking the Old Testament law and doing the same thing to the law that he does to the words of Isaiah here by opening them up and showing us what's inside saying things like, you know, it's, it's important that you not murder, but did you also know that if you hate someone in your heart, then you're guilty of murder? Showing us the twofold nature of the law and now the twofold nature of the kingdom, that it's both about physical oppression and blindness and poverty, but it's also about spiritual oppression and blindness and poverty. And so the first thing here in this introduction of the kingdom that Jesus says is that it's good news to the poor. 
And we know that through Jesus' entire ministry that he had a special place and a special concern for those who were physically poor. And there was one time where Jesus was in the midst of this this worship gathering in the synagogue, and a woman comes in, and she takes two small coins and throws them in the offering. And Jesus stops the show for a minute. He says, I want you to pay attention to what just happened here because what this woman gave, even though it has absolutely no earthly value at all, what she just gave is worth more than what everyone else in this room gave because she gave all that she had. And he teaches us something about the economics of the kingdom of God that it's not about what you have or what you bring to the table physically, but what you bring to the table spiritually. And the reason why Jesus can say is that the kingdom is good news to the poor is because this is a kingdom that you can't buy your way into. And it's a little like this now, but certainly during the time of Christ, what you had determined who you were. And if you had great wealth, then you also had great opportunity. If you had great wealth, then you were able to open doors that someone with less would not be able to open, would not be able to broach those opportunities or those abilities. There was no American dream to be able to claw your way out of some sort of situation. If you were born into it, then you usually stayed there. And so there was very little good news to the poor. But now Jesus is saying the kingdom of God has come into the world and there is no admission fee. And if there were, you wouldn't be able to pay it and no one would be able to pay it because the price would be far too high. And so the good news to the poor here is that no matter who you are, no matter what you have, the kingdom of God is for you. Jesus is telling us that the gospel is the great equalizer. That it takes kings and peasants and puts them on the exact same level because the Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so when it comes to what it really takes to enter the kingdom of God, none of us have it. All of us are poor in spirit. All of us are spiritually impoverished because of our sin and because of our brokenness and because of our shame. And so the gospel flattens everyone out and then gives everyone the opportunity to be lifted up because it comes as a gift through Christ, through grace and by faith. And then we see this underlying hope that Jesus is going to teach over and over and over again through his ministry. That you don't have to have great wealth to be of great value in the kingdom of God. You don't have to have a lot of things. You don't have to have a lot of stuff. You don't have to have the noticeably obvious gifts. But that anyone who trusts in Christ is of great value. Jesus would say things like, there's no one greater in the world than John the Baptist, and yet the person who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he because this gospel, again, turns the economy of the world completely upside down down. And so Jesus says this is a good news message to those who are poor because the kingdom of God, it belongs to you because you can enter in free of charge through what I'm going to do for you. And no matter what you have or what you don't have, none of it matters because God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And so whether it's two copper coins or all the wealth in the world, whatever you have, God can take and increase and use. And so the gospel of the kingdom is good news to the poor. But Jesus also says that it is liberty to the oppressed. It's liberty to the oppressed. Excuse me, I've got to get another drink. Allergy season is wreaking havoc on me right now. 
I can barely open my eyes most of the day tomorrow, so I'm afraid that when I'm talking to people, they just think I'm really awkwardly winking at them. And I promise you, if that happens to you, I'm not being weird or creepy. I just, the pollen is eating my face. So the gospel is good news to the oppressed. One of my favorite people throughout Christian history is a man named William Wilberforce. And William Wilberforce spent over 40 years of his life working in England to see the British slave trade abolished. Year after year after year in Parliament, fighting through disease and and physical ailments and discomfort, going time and time again and be rejected over and over again, Wilberforce kept going and going because he knew that it was not right or it was not just for one person to own another, and he was not going to rest until either he died or the slave trade was abolished, and he was able to see that happen in his lifetime. But William Wilberforce didn't do this simply because he had some sort of desire or passion for it. He did, but it came from a very specific place. Because William Wilberforce knew that the message of the kingdom of God is that Christ came to liberate the captives and to give freedom to those who were oppressed. And it was that message of the kingdom that drove this man to dedicate his life to seeing justice given to those who didn't have a voice. We see in Jesus' entire ministry that not only is he focused on liberating the oppressed in, in physical chains, but also those who were, who were weighed down by sickness and disease and physical ailments and even demonic possession. We see Jesus casting out demons. We see Jesus healing the sick. We see Jesus telling people who were paralyzed to get up and walk again and setting them free from oppression, giving us a little snippet of what it's going to look like one day when Christ returns to make everything right and everything new and all that sickness and all that oppression will be gotten rid of once and for all. But again, as Jesus says this about liberation to the oppressed, he's not just talking about physical oppression. He's not just talking about physical captivity. We see Paul over and over again as he describes sin using the term of slavery, saying that we are enslaved to our sin, that we are held captive by our sin, that we are oppressed by our sin, and there's nothing that we can do to get out of it. And so Jesus is saying, I have come, whether you are physically oppressed or spiritually oppressed or both, I have come to set the captives free. And so not only is the gospel good news to the poor, but it's good news to those who are oppressed and broken and hurting. Then he says that he came to give sight to the blind. I think one of the most beautiful stories to summarize this is when Jesus and his disciples come across a man who was born blind. And the disciples looked at the man and they asked Jesus, they said, hey, teacher, what happened here? Who sinned to cause this man to be blind? Was it his sin that caused him to be blind, or was it his father's sin? And Jesus says, I don't know that he's the only one blind here. He says, it wasn't his sin, or it wasn't his father's sin, but he was born this way for this moment so that my power could be shown through him, and Jesus restores sight to this man who has never been able to see. And we see in that story that this man was born blind and he was given sight so that all those who witnessed it were able to actually truly see. 
And so we see Jesus care about the restoration of sight to someone who is physically blind, but at the exact same moment, he sees the spiritual blindness of his disciples and all those gathered around. And at that one moment, he helped this one man see, and he helped everyone else see as well. Because the gospel is good news to those who are physically blind and those who are spiritually blind. Jesus tells us that he came to bring total freedom from the inside out. And as he makes this proclamation, this is fishing with a very big net. I eat a lot of canned tuna. That was a weird transition. I did not give enough space to that not to be super awkward. But I do, in fact, eat a lot of canned tuna. The safe amount, I know you're not supposed to eat a lot of it, but I eat enough of it to not get mercury poisoned, but also enough of it to really enjoy eating canned tuna. And there's a lot of things about the ethics of canned tuna. You know, you don't want to eat the, the tuna, and you want it to be dolphin safe, because for a long time they would use these big nets, and then they use these trolling rods, and they would just catch all kinds of stuff, and it would just get caught up in the net, and you just wanted them to catch the tuna. You don't want them to catch all the other things, because it's harmful for the ecosystem and the environment. But when Jesus is throwing out this net, he's throwing out one of those non-dolphin safe tuna nets. And he is catching everybody in the wake of that. Because he's saying this is a message that's not just for one kind of person, but all people fit into this description. Jesus is laying out the message of the kingdom, and it's good news to everyone because all of us are in some sort of poverty, whether it's physical or spiritual or usually both. We're all in some kind of oppression, whether it's physical oppression or spiritual oppression or and or spiritual oppression. We all have some kind of blindness because the Bible says there is no one good. There is no one righteous. There is no one who seeks God and there is no one who has ever seen God. And so Jesus is taking this message and saying, I am bringing the gospel story. I am bringing the good news of the kingdom. And it is for you and for you and for you and for you, for everyone hearing this message. This is good news because I have come to set you free. I have come to turn this world upside down. I've come to give you sight. Reading one simple passage from Isaiah, Jesus reveals his entire mission that he has come to bring new hope and new life to people who are dead in their sins and trespasses. And in verse 22, the people hear this story. They hear these words, and they're excited. It says, And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. They heard that he came to to bring this good news to the poor and to bring sight to the blind and liberty to the captives. And maybe they even heard the deeper message that he came to bring spiritual restoration as well. And they thought, that is so good. That is such a beautiful thing. This sermon that Jesus preached, that's an easy amen. It's hard to find somebody who's going to be really just upset and frustrated about good news to the poor and sight to the blind. That's a really great message and a great story. And while this part is an easy amen, then Jesus keeps talking. And he starts being a little harsh with them. He says, doubtless you'll quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what you did in Capernaum. And then he starts talking about all these Old Testament stories of of all these widows and all these lepers. And and basically what Jesus is saying here, to summarize to the point, I know that you've heard about all the healings I've done in Capernaum, and you probably think I'm going to do them here, but I'm not. This is what you get. You get the message of the kingdom, and that's all you need. 
And then all of a sudden, all the people who thought that this was such a nice story and such a beautiful message that Jesus was teaching, the mood changed. And things got way out of hand, crazy out of hand. They went from thinking, oh, this is a marvelous, wondrous message. Isn't that Joseph's boy? That's sweet. That's nice. I'm so excited about him. Wait, what did he say? You know what we should do to this guy? We should throw him off a cliff. That is a super big escalation, but it happens fast. And one of the strangest, most, I just think, delightful passages in all the Bible, in verse 30, they take Jesus to the top of this mountain that their whole town is built off of, and they're about to throw him down a cliff. And then Luke, with absolutely no explanation at all, just says, but passing through their midst, he went away. I don't really know what that means. But Jesus just strolls out of this as these people are about to throw him down a cliff. And it's, I think it's just amazing that Luke gives us absolutely no details about that. But the people all of a sudden become consumed with rage because they wanted the kingdom on their terms. They thought, we'll deal with this, this sweet little message that you're presenting to us here. But also, you're going to need to start doing some of that here. We want to see the proof. We want you to touch the people that are sick here. We want you to heal the lepers and restore the sight of the blind physically. The spiritual stuff is nice, but give us the stuff that we really want. They were excited at the easy amen, but when the message of the kingdom didn't meet their expectations, they turned hard. And from the very beginning, Jesus draws a line in the sand. And he says, this is the message of the kingdom of God. This is how the kingdom works. It's not on your terms, but it's on mine. And I promise you my terms are better than your terms, but you have to accept it on my terms. And so what are you going to do? And just like the people in the synagogue there, we have to wrestle with this same question. As we see this very first presentation of the kingdom of God in the book of Luke, we're going to see a lot more. As we go through the teachings of Christ in the book of Luke, we're going to see Jesus teach a lot more things. But we have to start with this foundation and say, what are we going to do with this message? And what are we going to do with this Christ? Do we only want the kingdom of God when he talks about delivering sight to the blind? But are we also going to want the kingdom of God when he says, you know what? But maybe you don't get this part of it right now. Do we want to cling to the kingdom of God just when Jesus says things like, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God? Or are we also going to cling to Christ when he says, you must take up your cross daily and follow after me? Do we want the kingdom for all of its beauty, or do we just want a kingdom that we create? Before we see Jesus teach about what the kingdom is and how we should live in it, we have to decide how we are going to react to this initial message. Do we want to throw it off a cliff and try to do things our way? Or can we marvel at the beauty of the kingdom of God, even the parts we don't fully understand? The message of the kingdom is a beautiful message. And it's a message for all people. And so if you're here this morning, if I were to ask you the question, are you oppressed or poor or blind or broken, the answer for all of us according to Scripture is yes. Whether physically or spiritually or both, all of us fit into this category. All of us get caught into this net. And this is good news for you. 
This is good news for me that Christ came to bring a kingdom free of charge that we can enter into through his blood. He became oppressed so that we could have liberty. He became poor so that we could have an inheritance fit for a king. He went to the cross and suffered death and darkness so that we could see the beauty of God and who he is and so that we could be called children, that we could be sons and daughters of God. And that is incredibly good news. It isn't always easy. And we should say that right off the bat here. We are going to see Jesus teach some very hard truths. In just in the next couple sermons, we're going to see Jesus start to throw down some heavy, duty, awful kind of sounding things. We're going to see Jesus measure up some blessings with some woes. We're going to see Jesus teach about things that are honorable in the kingdom of God and some things that aren't. And some of that is going to get in our business and some of that might hurt our feelings. And some of those might be things that we struggle with. But even though the kingdom and its message isn't always easy, it is always good. Because even the parts that are difficult, even the parts that are hard, refine us like fire and bring us out on the other side looking more like Christ and preparing us and fitting us for the ministry that he's called us to do, but also preparing us for an eternity to come where we get to be with Christ forever, not based on what we've done, but based on what he has done for us. And so let's take that good news and see it for what it is to be thankful for the kingdom message that is good news to the poor and liberty to the captives and sight to the blind. And then let's go out like William Wilberforce, like Paul, like the woman and her two coins, and live like people who were once blind but now can see. To live like people who were once oppressed by sin and in captivity to our sins, but now through Christ have been set free. To live like people who were spiritually poor and had nothing to offer God at all, but now are rich because of the love and mercy of Christ and have all that we need to do all that Christ has called us to do. Let's live like people who believe the good news. Let's act like people and serve like people and love like people who believe the good news. Let's be members of the kingdom that Christ introduced so many years ago in this little synagogue in his hometown.